0: The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. We have walked with Jesus as He crossed the Kidron, the bloody brook where the, where the blood of the sacrifices drained out into the Kidron Valley. We walked with Him as He entered the garden, as He knelt and as He prayed. We saw Peter and the other apostles that could not stay awake. They could not watch with him. And we saw where Jesus went a little further, which he always does. He always goes a little further. We've seen where he has been taken. We've seen where he has been brought before the religious authorities. We've seen now where he has been taken to Pilate and he's been he's been condemned to death and they have begun to walk him to the foot we walked with him to the foot of mount calvary as he stumbled under the crossbeam of the of that horrible cross probably weighed around 100 pounds and he was so weak by then from the scourging and from the uh, the the things he'd been subjected to already that he stumbled under the load, and they had to compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, to come by, who was there passing by, to carry his cross. And today, we stand at the foot of Golgotha's hill, and we are about to ascend that dark hillside to the place of his crucifixion. And we will see here today the fulfillment of the purpose that Jesus had already told them about. Back in the ninth chapter, in verse 31, he, after they declared clearly who He was, and He declared who He was, we're told the Son of Man is delivered, He said this, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill Him, and after that He is killed, He shall rise the third day. They didn't understand that. They still didn't understand that. He told them plainly, but here is the purpose. We saw from the beginning that this is the gospel, the good news of, 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 of the, the Son of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now we have the Son of God being abused, being mocked. We see the fulfillment of His purpose here as we get to the foot of Calvary's Hill. And this, indeed, is an amazing and yet horrible account. horrible account. I don't apologize for what we're going to talk about but we're going to get pretty graphic this morning because I think we need to understand what crucifixion was all about so let's talk about that and we by the way there's at least three important questions that apply to our lives that I believe we're going to get the answers to as we go through this stay tuned we'll, we'll get to them in a minute so let's look first at what happens to him look at Look down in verse 22 of Mark chapter 15. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Remember, that was a deadening agent. That was sort of an anesthetic type uh, drink. And he wouldn't. He would, not, he would not take of it. He would not dull his senses in any way he he was prepared to drink to the dregs of the wrath of god on behalf of his children in verse 24 when they had crucified him they parted his garments casting lots upon them what every man should take and it was the third hour and they crucified him i want you to notice the mocking of his crucifixion i want you to notice how he was put on display in a, in a very uh, crass and crude way. Now, I don't know if he, if he was stripped absolutely naked. The Jews didn't, didn't like that, and the Romans sometimes uh, would, would give uh, deference to the Jews' customs, but we don't know for sure if he was stripped completely naked, but he was shamefully laid bare before the world. Notice, notice it says that they parted his garments. They took his clothes off of him. And then they gambled for the robe that he wore. They didn't want to, we read elsewhere, they didn't want to split it up. It was one garment. They, they took the robe, which was really the only thing that the Son of God owned, if you will, here in this life, physically owned, and they took even that from him, and they began to cast lots for it. That's all he meant to them. They, they took the robe off of him, and he was shamefully laid bare before the world. <laughs> you know, that's... I think of what he says in Hebrews 12, too, that he endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, he didn't enjoy the cross. We're going to see why he didn't enjoy the cross. Crucifixion was one of the most horrible ways to die that man has ever invented. He didn't enjoy it, but he did endure it, despising the shame. There was shame in the cross. And verse 25 says, it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. We read elsewhere that Pilate is the one that had this this mocking title put up over him. They They weren't declaring him king of the Jews. They were making fun of him because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. It wasn't enough for them to just crucify him. They had to make fun of him. Now remember, this is the Son of God. This is the creator of all. This is the one who created the very tree upon which he is going to be nailed. It's the third hour. Notice in verse 27, they didn't make any special provision for him. It says, with him they crucified two thieves. The one on his right hand and the other on his left. You know, I guess that was just by happenstance. I guess that was just a coincidence. Did it just happen that they didn't know? (laughs) You know, we read that over in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. I want to turn there just for a second. I just want to read it to you. In verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, listen to this illustrious group that is against him. If I had this many of the world's rulers against me, I would say that I had really uh, messed up. I had really gotten into trouble. You know, that's, that's what it looks like. He says, for a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, With the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. This is an illustrious group. These are powerful potentates that have gathered against him. Pilate was the ruler of the area of mid-Judea. Herod was the ruler of northern Judea. And the the Romans were the ruler of all the known world at the time. And even the children of Israel who had the the authorities in the religious areas, they were all gathered against him. It looks like Jesus is out of luck. It looks like he's in trouble. He's finally come across something he can't handle. Is that the case? For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Oh, they thought they were there to take him down. They thought they were there to take him out. But they were just simply there doing what the Lord had purposed from the foundation of the world that should happen. That's what they were there to do that day. Now, is that some kind of absolute predestination? No, it's not. That's God leaving them to their own wickedness. Because we read elsewhere that they by wicked hands have slain the Lord of glory. So they crucified him between two thieves. That wasn't some happenstance. It says in verse 28, and the scripture was fulfilled. You know, everything he did here was fulfilling scripture. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. You can turn sometime and read through Isaiah 53. And verse 12 is the one that particularly talks about that. He was numbered with the transgressors. The Son of God, the God of glory, the Word who became flesh, was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, that's an accounting term. He was counted to be a sinner just like anybody else. Because remember, these weren't just pickpocket thieves. These were robbers. These were violent malefactors. And then notice in verse 29, it didn't stop at that. See, this wasn't, you know, there were many people crucified in Rome every day or every week. And many people didn't know who they were. They might pass by and they might see somebody and think, well, that's sad, but I don't know his story. But he was a famous inmate. He was a famous condemned man and it says they that passed by railed on him remember we're talking about the son of god and saying ah thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days save thyself and come down from the cross you know what a what a mocking thing to throw in his face he he in other words what they're saying is oh he made his brag he 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 bragged about what he was going to do. Let's see if he can fulfill it now. You know, there's, there is something within us that gets a malicious pleasure when somebody is lifted up in pride and makes big claims, and then they don't come through, right? It's something in us that's like that. That's what they thought about him. They thought he was some prideful upstart some rebel who thought he could uh, overthrow not only the Roman government but also the religious traditions of their fathers they said let him let him fulfill what he bragged about likewise also the chief priests mocking and among themselves said among themselves with the scribes he saved others himself he cannot save (laughs) Oh, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't believe in him. They didn't, they didn't see in him what his disciples saw in him. But by the way, his disciples also forsook him and fled. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. What mocking, what ridicule. But notice something very, very important to you. The last sentence of that verse 32. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Now I don't think I'll be dwelling too much upon the account in Luke twenty-three of the two thieves, but I do want to make this point: there weren't there wasn't one good thief and one bad thief. You know that's kind of the way the world portrays it one one kind-hearted, compassionate thief and one One mean, ugly thief. There wasn't wasn't one good thief and one bad thief. They were two bad thieves. They were both ridiculing him. They were both reviling him. Both of the ones that were crucified with him were reviling him. We'll see. Something happened to one of them. Something happened to one of them. And it wasn't a preacher went up to the cross and preached to him with a Bible tract and got him down and got him baptized either. You know, something else happened. Something that was a direct act of the Holy Spirit on the heart of that reviling, wicked thief. <laughs> By the way, it's the same act that, of the Holy Spirit that happened to you, child of God, in your reviling, wicked heart, <laughs> which was just like that thief. You see, what, what mocking and what ridicule he endured on the cross. But now, for a few minutes, I want us to look at, I want us to look at the method the method of his crucifixion i want us to look at the crucifixion itself now the romans you know we we read that he was crucified and that's and that's all the bible tells us and that's all we need to know but if we want to really understand what happened to him we need to we need to dig a little deeper and we need to look into what does it mean to be crucified what is crucifixion as i said crucifixion was a was something that uh the most hideous torture that that man ever made up really it's the most torturous way to execute somebody the Rome and the Romans were experts at crucifixion Cicero called it the most cruel and hideous of tortures it always almost always began with scourging which was public flogging and that's uh that that was a way to hasten the death by by taking him out by taking the candidate for crucifixion out they would tie him his hands to a post where his back was exposed they would strip him of his clothes and his back would be exposed and he would be repeatedly struck with a uh, with a with a whip that had multiple uh, lines on it and in those lines of that whip in those thongs of that whip there would be little uh uh, little pieces of metal and maybe some sheep bone embedded in it, and they would have left wounds like furrows. It, it would have caused him to bleed. Initially, it would have been made bloody, and then he would have eventually have been actually bleeding from those, from those pieces of metal and bone. You know, once again, you're talking about something that didn't just happen to him. In Isaiah 50 and verse 6, we're told that he said, I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. When he, when he would be struck on his back with those whip with that whip, it would be like a man ploughing furrows in the ground. Furrows were ploughed into his back. And then they took a crown of thorns. They they took the thorns and they they and not some little stickers, not not little briars like we run into. I'm talking about thorns that were uh, several inches long in some cases, and they had woven that into a crown. And they took that crown and they 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 pushed it down on his head, and they and they that would pierce those those thorns would pierce into his scalp. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, some of you that are medic have have a medical background know that that. Probably when you have a scalp wound, you bleed, you know, more than any other time, really, uh, from a scalp wound. So the blood, you can just picture him with that crown of bloody thorns and his face covered with the blood that was flowing down from those thorns on his head. And you know what happens when you bleed? You, You become dehydrated. Ultimately, you go into shock. I was doing a little research about... What would happen in crucifixion? And I ran across this one doctor said that if you remember, Jesus had not drunk from since the night before. So the combination of the beatings, the crown of thorns, and the scourging would have set into motion an irreversible process of severe hydration and cardiorespiratory failure. Another one said this: most artists do not even come close in depicting what Jesus looked like. After all of this torture, he was probably the most inhuman-looking thing you've ever seen. I know some of you have had the experience who are first responders of of showing up to scenes of wrecks or of other scenes of uh, maybe criminal activity where somebody's been killed or maybe you've just happened upon that. And I'll tell you, I've seen some of those myself. And those are some horrible scenes. But according to Isaiah 52, in verse 14, we're told this about the Messiah, about Jesus. We see these pictures that are so beautiful of him hanging on the cross. He's got this lovely face. He's got this glowing countenance. But I want you to read what the Bible says about it. In verse 14 of Isaiah 52, As many were astonished at thee, his visage, his face was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. In other words, you would not probably have even recognized him to be human at the point where he was finally crucified because of all the scourging, all the beating, all the blood loss, all the things that had been inflicted upon him prior to the crucifixion now we're not talking about crucifixion yet we're fixing to We're fixing to. We're just talking about what's led up to it. And then after all of this, they they had stripped him bare, and then they had uh, they had taken then took the robe and put it back on him. And if you remember, those Roman soldiers began to mock him, and they put that he still had the crown of thorns on. Had this purple robe, and that robe. You think about the bloody back, his bloody body, and all the open wounds that he had on his body. And and what happens when you're bleeding and you've got something on? It sticks to your body it sticks it the blood coagulates there and it and it clots and it it causes your body causes your clothing to stick to you and then what happened to him they stripped the robe off of him again (laughs) oh what a pain that must have been that robe that had no doubt adhered to his body had been blended in that blood to his body and then they put his they put the the cross beam, the way they normally did it is, you know, when it talks about him carrying his cross, it probably was the cross beam because the, 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 the cross, there was usually a pole already in the ground and the cross beam was carried is what they carried up there. It could have been the whole cross. I don't know. I'm not going to uh, argue with you over that. But I'll say this, whatever it was, it was too heavy for the Son of God to carry. It was too heavy. For him, he stumbled under the weight of that. Can you imagine what he must have felt when he stumbled to the ground? You know, I've been trying to do a little working out lately down at the, down there with Mason, who's a harsh taskmaster. But uh, you know, we get these we get these these dumbbells, we get these kettlebells, and we try to carry them around. And after a while, that gets that gets heavy. Trying to do squats and trying to have something on your back like that, I can't imagine falling down with that that barbell with with all those weights on it and it coming crashing down on my back and and especially if I'd already been stripped naked and and beaten and scourged like he was and that's what happened to Jesus and it wasn't a some clean piece of metal it was a it was a piece of wood the splinters the 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 pieces of wood that would have that rough wood that would have scraped across his back I can't even imagine it and then they would have laid him down and driven the nails into his hands and feet. And I, want to, I just want to share something with you that, I, that I, I did a little research on trying to find a good medical description of crucifixion. So I want to read some of this to you. This, this came from a doctor named Truman Davis. I don't know when he wrote it, but uh, it, it seemed to be... Um, very much in line with all the research I had tried to do on this topic. So, I don't I don't vouch for this as scripture, but it does seem to be as good a medical description of crucifixion as I could come up with. I want you to listen to this. Okay. Now this is beginning with the Roman soldiers before he's crucified. After mocking him, and striking him across the face. The soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. Already having adhered to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, its removal causes excruciating pain just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage. And almost as though he were again being whipped, the wounds must once more begin to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The heavy crossbeam of the cross is tied across his shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion begins its slow journey along the Via Dolorosa. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, The weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with a shock produced by copious blood loss, is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects an onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock, until the 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the the crossbeam on the ground, and Jesus quickly is thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. And let me just stop here and say this, that it talks about the nails being driven into his hands. The wrist would have been considered part of his hands at that time. And what medical experts tell us is that a nail just through the palm would have stripped out. But most likely the nails were placed in his wrist right here at the base of his, of his hand. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action being careful not to pull the arms too tightly but to allow some flexion and and movement the crossbeam is then lifted in place at the top of the of the pole and the title reading jesus of nazareth king of the jews is nailed in place the left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot With both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating pain would have shot along the fingers and up the arms into his brain. The nails and the wrists would be putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. And then here is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed, the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. So Jesus would fight to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide would build up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially would subside. So he was able to push himself up to some degree to exhale and bring in oxygen. Jesus experienced several hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissues torn from his lacerated back as he moved up and down against the rough timber of that pole. And then another agony would begin, a terrible crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. You think about Psalm 22 and verse 14. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My heart is melted in the midst of my Bibles. Oh, how accurate is Scripture. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps out his fifth cry, I thirst. I tell you, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? He who made the, all the waters of the sea. He who created all the rain that falls, every drop that falls. He who could have called gallons upon gallons of water to his side. He could have called angels to bring, to bring pails of water, to bring buckets of water. And yet he cries out, I thirst. He who says that he would give us living waters that we might never thirst. He thirsts. He thirsts. He says in Psalm 22, My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Think about the thirst that's attending to the Lord himself. They soak a sponge in this sour wine, which was the staple drink of the Roman legionaries, and they lift it up to his mouth, and yet he doesn't appear to drink of that. Isn't that something? I know that's a, that's a horrible description. But beloved, what a marvelous thing it is that he who is the Son of God submitted himself to that kind of torture for you and I. Are you down and out today? Are you depressed today? Are you, are you dealing with something today that seems to be overwhelming? Beloved, remember the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you are facing that even comes close to what He experienced physically here. And there's more to it. There's more to it. And I want us to to look at that more to it as we bring this to a conclusion this morning. Notice the marvel of His crucifixion. Going back to Mark, the, the, the 15th chapter, notice in verse 33, when he, remember he started the crucifixion started at the third hour, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I want you to notice that God turned out the lights when his son was experiencing the most excruciating, the most difficult parts of the crucifixion. And remember this, beloved, they had to make up a word in order to describe all the sufferings. The word excruciating is a word that literally means out of the cross. That word, you talk, you talk about, I've had excruciating pain. You really have not had excruciating pain. We, I know we use it today in a different way, but the word excruciating has to do with the cross. They had to make up a word to describe the torture of the cross. And God turned out the lights. He was not going to let the spectacle of His Son's suffering and agony be put on display for the world to see. He turned off the lights We're told that in verse 34, it says, or verse 33, when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now notice he cried with a loud voice. There's something different about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that they by wicked hands crucified him. I know his crucifixion in one sense was like every other crucifixion that had ever been uh, performed. But in another greater sense, it was not like any other crucifixion. It was not like any other death. Because by the end of the ninth hour, after six hours on the cross... By the end of that sixth hour, most people who were crucified would have been so weak that they could not have hardly uttered a whisper. But yet the Lord Jesus Christ cries out with a loud voice. It would have been unbelievable to anyone in that day. We're going to see that one of the, uh, one of the centurions there uh, says, this surely must have been the Son of God. You know why? Because this wasn't like any other crucifixion he had ever performed. He could not believe what he had seen. And he says, so you remember you remember in John 10, uh, when, when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples there around verse 17, he says, my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. And listen, he says this, no man taketh it from me. I know they killed the Lord. I, knew, I know they slew the Lord of glory, but they only did it when he, when he allowed it, when he suffered it to happen. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. And praise God, he said, I have power to take it again." <laughs> In John 19, when he's talking to Pilate, he tells Pilate, Pilate says, "Don't you know, I've got the power of life and death over you?" He said, "You'd have no power if it hadn't been granted you from above." He cried out with a loud voice. He was able, he had the strength of the Godhead still, I believe. He had the ability to call upon that strength had he so desired. And notice the most marvelous statement of all those on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And by the way... Some say this is Jesus quoting David in Psalm 22, but beloved, I suggest to you, and I say this on the authority of scripture, David in Psalm 22 was quoting Jesus on the cross. (laughs) It was a prophecy of what he was going to say. Notice, Notice what he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a marvelous statement. What a what an amazing thing for the, God, for, for the second person of the Godhead to say. The very idea that the Godhead would submit itself voluntarily to the rending experience of this break in fellowship. Why did he do this? What did he do it for? He did it for us. He did it because someone had to die to pay the penalty for sin. And in order to pay the penalty for sin, he had to become sin. uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, beloved, (laughs) he had no sin. He was not a sinner. He was not like you and I. He did all things well. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But in that moment on the cross, in those those hours on the cross, he became sin for you and I. And because he became sin, and because God is a holy God, God the Father forsook him. I don't know what that means. I also read where God was in him, reconciling the world unto himself. Don't ask me to explain it all. I can't explain it, but I know this, that in some un- unbelievable, un- undescribable way, the Father forsook the Son because he said he did. And the Godhead that had been in perfect fellowship, since eternity past experienced a break in that fellowship for some period of time on the cross the god that he had called abba father daddy the god that's he, of whom he said thou hearest me always the god of whom it said in first john 5 listen to this listen to this this is amazing In 1 John, one of the reasons I don't like the new translations is they leave out some verses. This good old King James Version here in 1 John 5 and verse 7 tells us all we need to know about the Trinity, about the Godhead, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. No, I can't explain it. I can't explain it in detail, but I believe it with all of my heart. God is one, and yet he's manifest in three persons, and those three persons have perfect harmony. They agree in one, except for one moment in time on the cross. On the cross, he cried out, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? What an amazing statement. It is so marvelous that all the scriptures about the unity of the Godhead can be true and yet God also could forsake his son doesn't mean he wasn't pleased with what he had done we're told that it pleased God to bruise him he was pleased with the sacrifice but in the moment when he was sin for us God forsook him and notice in verse 35 some of them that stood by when they heard it said behold he calleth the lies And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see where the Elias will come down and take him down. In verse 37, Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Over in John 19 and verse 30, we're told he gave up the ghost, and that Greek word literally means he dismissed his spirit. He dismissed his spirit. He, He gave up the ghost. He died. There, The Son of God, the immortal, holy, eternal Son of God who came down as a, as a babe and grew up as a boy and ultimately became a young man died on the cross. And notice in verse 38, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. You know, let's not miss that fact. Let's not miss that, 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 that veil in that temple separated the common folk from the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest would go in once, once per year and make the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant would have sat and the Holy of Holies would have been there, the place where God uh, had said, I'll meet with you here That that veil would have been a thick veil. It wouldn't have been some little small curtain. It would have been something that would have been absolutely uh, impossible for man to take and to rend in two. And yet it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. You know what that signifies? I believe that signifies that the way had been made clear for man to approach unto God through the Holy of Holies. No longer did you need an intermediary because Christ is the mediator. There is no mediator between man and Christ. Many of our our brethren and sisters in the denominational world believe there's a mediator between man and Christ, but Christ is the mediator between us and God. And that holy of holies had been made clear. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. That statement of the centurion there, he couldn't believe what he had seen. This was not like any other crucifixion. I believe also the Holy Spirit had worked a work in his heart. And now he saw something different in this man. He had crucified him as nothing more than another malefactor. And then he realizes that he has crucified the Son of God. Can you imagine how he must have felt? I think you can. Or you ought to. because. Beloved, you and I crucified the Son of God. You want to know why He's there? You want to know why He's hanging? He's not there because He ran afoul of the Roman authorities. He's not there because He ran afoul of the religious authorities. He's not there by happenstance or bad luck. He's there because He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And somebody had to pay your penalty. For sin. Verses 40 through 47, we won't read those. You can read them yourself. But we read about how they laid his body in a tomb and how they were weeping over him and how they attended him, and even his own mother was there. And I want you to notice something else as we bring this to a close. The Gospels only give us a third person account as people there watching him. Sometime when you get a chance, go to the 22nd Psalm. And you'll read there the first-person account of what it was like to be on that cross and how that Jesus himself felt when he was hanging there. So I told you when we started that this account today would help us to answer three important questions. Okay, The first question is this. Would he endure... All of these sufferings. Would he endure all of this mocking torture? Not knowing whether he would, have been, he would be successful in what he was doing. Do you believe that the Godhead, do you believe Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would go to the cross in just some faint hope? That someone someday might accept what he's doing. Might uh, might agree to embrace what he's doing. And that they might someday be in heaven. Beloved, I don't believe that any of you believe that. And I sure don't believe that. He went to the cross knowing who that he was going to to the cross for. We're told over in 2 Timothy, we're told that he said that uh, the the foundation of God uh, is sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. We're told in Isaiah 53 that he knew, he he, he saw the, the, the seed that he was dying for. He he knew what he was doing. Would he endure all this not knowing whether he would be successful? Beloved, when he he cried out, it is finished, in John 19 and verse 30, he meant it. It had been done. It had been accomplished. Second question. Knowing what he endured, knowing what what we've just read about, that that he experienced for you and I, is there any trespass that we can't forgive our brother and our sister? Is there anything that you can do to me that I can't forgive? Is there anything that I can do to you that you can't put aside and overlook? We're told in the fourth chapter of Ephesians that we're to forbear one another and forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Is there any trespass that anyone commits against me that I am not required to forgive? How dare I hold against my brother some trespass when Jesus Christ endured the cross in this horrible suffering we've talked about for me who continues to trespass against him? I've trespassed against him this very morning. I don't want to, but the, humans, the humanity in me, the Adam nature in me, can't help being the Adam man that he is. And I'm not saying we can't help committing sin, but what I'm saying to you is, is that we've still got that Adamic nature and we will be sinners until the day we die. And yet Jesus experienced all this suffering, endured it all for you and I, How do I have the right to hold a trespass against you? The third question is this. It's not easy for me to trust people. You may experience the same thing. Some people are more trusting than others. It takes takes a while. I mean, I try to be trusting. I try to give, but it takes a while. You know, it helps if you prove it to me that you care about me. It helps. I've tried to do that as your pastor. I hope you know I love you. I've tried to prove it. Can't we trust someone who would endure what Christ endured? I don't like to walk by faith. It's totally against my nature. I like to have it all planned out. I'm going to do this tomorrow and this next week, and I'm going to be here in a year, and I'm going to be there in five years. And let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. Ten years ago, <laughs> even ten years ago at this point, if you said, where are you going to be in ten years, preacher? It wouldn't have been Zion. <laughs> it wouldn't have been here. It wouldn't have been preaching this message to you. It wouldn't have been preparing to celebrate our ten-year ten anniversary of the revival here because I I had other plans. And when the time came that the Lord showed me that this was where I needed to be, that was the hardest thing I've ever done because it required me to walk by faith. I didn't know the result. I didn't know the answer. I didn't know if it would succeed. I had no idea whether even my family would come along and be part of this church with me. I did not know. That was a struggle for me, but praise God, unlike so many other times in my life, he enabled me to walk by faith. But you know why I can walk by faith? Because I can trust somebody who endured what Jesus endured. I can trust somebody who went, didn't go as far as he could go, didn't, didn't, didn't get it almost there and leave the rest up to me. See, he walked all the way up Calvary. He didn't try to get away. He didn't try to cut and run. Can't we trust someone who would endure the cross? I believe you know the answer to that. I hope you know you can trust me. I know I can trust you guys. But, but only to a certain point. But you can trust him all the way. You can walk by faith. And now as we bring it to a close, I know... I know we've kind of left it in a bad place. We've talked about some, some terrible things, some horrible agony that was experienced. We've left Jesus buried in a barred tomb. We've left his disciples scattered like sheep with no shepherd. We've left his mother even weeping. And we're, we're going to see, even in the next chapter, she's still in despair. But this is just the first installment. There's a sequel coming. I want you to stay tuned. Because see, this is crucifixion day. But resurrection day is on its way. (laughs) Stay tuned. It's going to be glorious. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.